Welcome to another episode of My Loops Are Up Here. This is Dr. Shivani Kamodia Barto, and today I am joined by our guest, Dr. Parl Dua Mukher. Parl is the older sister of Dr. Manu Dua. She recently lost her brother to oral cancer. He passed away in March 2021 at the young age of 34. Manu was a general dentist and a practice owner in Calgary, Alberta. He also had a strong passion for writing, and before he passed, he began writing journal entries, which would later be published by Parl in the book Life Interrupted. We highly encourage all of our listeners to read this book. Parl and I had a very long discussion, and we've decided to split up our conversation into two separate episodes. So in this first episode, you'll hear Parl open up about Manu's diagnosis, treatment, and the life lessons he imparted. In the second episode, we will discuss grief, life purpose, and the precious lessons of mortality and how Parl is working through her grief and by sharing her story and publishing Life Interrupted, she has been able to take steps forward. If you or anyone you know is dealing with grief, the loss of a loved one, or a terminal diagnosis, this episode may be difficult to hear, but it may be exactly what you need to hear. We are always here to support our listeners with one-on-one discussions or providing further resources. You'll see in the show notes, we've linked Dr. Manu Dua's articles in Dental Town, the link to the published book, Life Interrupted, and the link to Parl's Instagram page where you can reach out to her via direct message. Enjoy this first part of the episode. It is a very vulnerable and emotional conversation. And join us for part two as we continue the discussion. Thank you, Shivani. Hi, I really appreciate it and really honored to be here today. Um, I'm Dr. Parul Dua Makar. I'm a dental uh, I'm a general dentist in New York, and um, I really haven't shared much with the world until my only and younger brother passed away this past March uh, 2021 to oral cancer. And he himself was a dentist um, with a late diagnosis and mismanagement, I feel, in his treatment. He um, it led to his demise within a year and a half, almost two years of his initial diagnosis. So he had a story to share. Uh, he wrote his words as he fought and um, I just brought them on to have the world read them. And um, it was his story, he was very verbal and I'm just kind of helping him finish his journey. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I know this is a difficult conversation to have and as his sister and having him passed away recently, um, I know this can be very difficult to talk about. Um, and I know that some people who are listening today may have recently lost a family member or someone close to them, or maybe, um, experiencing, uh, cancer diagnosis for themselves or for their family members. So um, I think this is a meaningful conversation and will impact many people listening. Um, so do you mind sharing a little bit more about Manu's diagnosis and what that treatment was like, just so people are a little bit more aware of his story? Sure. 
Um, but yes, you touched a very important part about loss of life and especially during COVID times and uncertainty and inability to travel. Uh, and that kind of played a lot of role in Manu's treatment and diagnosis as far as me. You know, I, I felt helpless um, knowing that what I know, being in the same field and not being able to help him. Um, so Manu's diagnosis was late of July of 2019. In June of 2019, he showed me, he called me Didi, which means older sister. And he sent me a picture on the phone and he's like, hey, check out this lesion on my tongue. It's been bothering me. It's been a few months now. And I look at it and I show it around um, to a few surgeons that I work with and everybody hands down like oral cancer. And I talked to him, I'm like, Manu, it's been there. I'm to biopsy, it's been there for months and it's hurting. He's like, yeah, it, my oral surgeon thinks it's like in planets. It's, that's why it hurts, oral cancer doesn't hurt. You know, this um, misdiagnosis or uh, misrepresentation of what cancer really presents like. And I said, sure, it may not hurt initially, but as it grows, it will hurt and it'll be painful. And he was having trouble eating, talking, and it was, you know, it was significant in size, but nothing that I felt a small incision removal would take care of it. It didn't look as bad. And um, I went and visited him in July, like I always do from New York to Canada. We go every summer and he hadn't got a biopsy still. This, he had gotten his wisdom teeth out. And I'm like, did you get a biopsy when you got your wisdom teeth out? He's like, no. It's like in planets, it's not a big deal or it's irritation from the wisdom teeth. And I'm like, even a simple brush box, a small incision, I mean, nothing. So when I saw him in July, I said, show me your tongue. And this tongue, I, I wish I'd taken a picture. I'll never forget it. It was hemi-section, like half of it was just ulcerated, this brown, leathery, and he was not eating certain foods, you know, spicy or the texture of foods. He couldn't taste very well. He was having trouble speaking with me. And I said, why haven't you biopsied this? He's like, you know, I'm just, just waiting. You guys are here for such a short time. I want to spend time with you. I'll biopsy when you leave. By the time I got biopsied, it was a stage two squamous cell carcinoma um, that had lymph involvement to the left uh, neck. And... Then we decided, okay, we're gonna go for surgery. He found a team to work with him quickly because time was of an essence. Um, we did contemplate bringing him to the States. However, because he didn't have insurance here, he was a Canadian citizen, everything would be out of pocket. And we were talking not a simple procedure. What he had done was a uh, hemiglossectomy he had a radial graft place. He had a team of vascular surgeons, plastic surgeons, ENTs, um, oral surgeons, pathologists, and he had a huge team with the anesthesiologist. It was an eight hour surgery. So to have to pay out of pocket in the States was uh, in, you know, astronomical. And he found time in August and you know it was expedited. So we ended up doing it there in August. He was in the hospital for two weeks after this eight hour surgery. He recovered phenomenally. Uh, in fact, he came to New York in September and to visit me. I had just started a practice and um, 
he came, he saw my practice, you know, told me what not to do. <laughs> you know, you know he, he started his own and he had kind of helped me guide my and so he was telling me what reports to check. And so mentally, he was all together there. Um, he was physically traveling and he went to the city. We hung out, went to Intrepid. And he was back at work October 1st. He was seeing patients again. And he started slowing down just because he had numbness in his left arm um, from where the graft was removed. And a little, he would get tired mentally having to focus the stress of running a practice. He was a sole practitioner. So it really, I think it took a toll on him. He didn't take the time out as, you know, we, as sole practitioners, you know, we kind of put our health in the back burner sometimes. And, and he was starting to realize that this was taking a toll on him. Um, fast forward, he was doing well. He was you know, back to sports, friends, everything's great. We actually traveled. We made plans to travel to Hawaii as a family, my parents, my brother, my family. Um, and he, this was in April. We planned a trip. However, we ended up canceling because COVID had just started and Canada was in a lockdown. Um, April, around March and April beginning, he had a filling done. And he had um, a swelling on the same side of where his cancer lesion was on the left. And uh, it was a swelling in his neck. Um, they biopsied it. It was positive for squamous cell carcinoma. And so he needed a second surgery. He had a second surgery April 17, 2020, followed by uh, 33 rounds of chemo radiation in the summer, June, July. So in April, they ended up doing a CT scan of the, um, of the chest, the head and neck. And um, on the CT scan they, of the chest, they found a small ground glass opaque lesion and they, it was small, it was like one centimeter by one something centimeters tiny and they blew it off. They didn't do a PET scan on him, knowing that how aggressive this cancer has been for such a quick recurrence within eight months. Um, they also, they were like, ah, oh, you have a cough, let's just wait, we'll analyze it in six months. Um, no biopsy was done of the chest lesion because of the size um, and the risks involved, so they let it be. Um, the suggestion was made that all the cancer cells weren't taken out from the initial surgery uh, the year prior. So they felt like they didn't go deep enough. They went wide enough, but not deep enough. And thus the recurrence. So, you know, so a few mistakes made. Um, he finished his chemo radiation during his 34th birthday. And because he knew the cancer was back and he knew how much trouble he was having, focusing on the stress of running into practice, he had a large team. Um, he decided he's just going to sell. So during the summer of 2020, June, July, between chemo radiation, he sold his practice. He found a, 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 a sole practitioner, he sold it. And he was just, he was like, okay, I'm done. I'm gonna finish chemo radiation. I've gotten rid of my practice. I'm gonna focus on me. And, you know, he started kind of checking off items on his bucket list. He's like, I'm just gonna live my life on my terms and not worry about other stresses. Um, so his 34th birthday finished, July 6th, he finished chemo radiation. He was free in the sense, no, 
he wasn't married, he was uh, no kids, but so he was like socially, mentally, um, just free of the bounds of day-to-day running anything. He would, he just worked out, ate healthy. He was really focusing on him. He was, he got a Porsche. He would, he would take the summers in Calgary, are beautiful. He would take his car, ride it out um, with friends. And um, he had a follow-up scan that was to be in October, which got delayed to November because of COVID. They were trying to push uh, non-emergent cases. November scan, the CT scan of the chest showed that the lesion on the left side had grown four times the size. And then they scheduled a biopsy in December. So it wasn't an immediate biopsy. They didn't do a PET scan still. Um, they're like, okay, we're gonna see what this lesion is. It could be a host of things. You know, Cancer was definitely on the top of the list. Um, and Manu at that time called me and I was returning from work and just driving. And he would always tell me first before he told my parents. And he said, you know, the scans are back. I haven't got the official report, but it's grown. It's metastatic. And I'm like, you don't know this. Let's just wait for the biopsy. He's like, nope, I'm ready to die. I have accepted and I'm okay with it. So he wasn't pissed. He wasn't angry. He wasn't like, didn't blame anyone um, for the late diagnosis or for not, you know, the recurrence or anything. He didn't blame himself or the doctors or the circumstances or destiny, whatever you call it, you know, you always try to blame someone. <laughs> but he was like, you know, this, this is my life, I've accepted it. Um, and, you know, this is when he started writing. And he kind of did a self reflection, because this time that he was not working, he was starting, he loved to read. So he would read and he'd reflect and he would write. And that's what he felt his true calling was in writing. Um, December 7th was his scheduled biopsy. December 1st, he ended up in the hospital with inability to breathe, a lot of coughing, and they found fluid in his lungs. Finally, the PET scan was done. Uh, he never got the biopsy. They just um, did a cell study on the fluid taken out from his lungs, positive for cancer. Um, the PET scan showed metastasis to the pelvic bone on the left side. Lung lining, it, it was all over the lung lining on the left side, so it was not um, operable at this point. And this was it, really. Um, so that's when I flew in December among COVID. So all this time, I was allow not really allowed to go. I wasn't vaccinated. Canada was shut. I couldn't help do the reports. Manu was doing everything by himself. Uh, because doctors weren't allowed in the hospital during chemo, during radiation, everything he dealt with it by himself. And my parents are non-medical background, so they felt helpless. Um, with COVID, there was not a lot of uh, emotional, you know, friend support because everybody was cautious. First restriction, second, he was immunocompromised. You know, it's a lung, you know, the COVID is a respiratory. So you know, it's just this triage of these huge effects that were monumental in his success, and uh, sorry, and caused us failure, and, you know, it wasn't one factor. And so my parents were in this bubble of Manu, and Manu was in this bubble of him, and um, he really had, 
the, the only thing I think that kept him going was expressing himself in his words, because he, once the chess court was placed in December, he barely talked. Um, I visited him December 13th, I spent a week. Maybe he spoke a sentence or two, even like scheduling doctor appointments. He just couldn't, he's like, you talk, I can't. You know, I'm like, let's go for a drive. Let me take you out of the house. Cause he was at home, all his care was at home. Blood work was getting done at home. He would only go for immunotherapy or radiation to the hospital. And he's like, I'm like, I'll just take you out. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. Just sit in the car, just get some fresh air, change of scenery. He's like, no, he's like, it hurts. My, it hurts to breathe. Um, he wouldn't even come to the balcony of his home. He's like, it just hurts. And so he would just sit all day long. We would watch TV, we would watch movies and that's really it. And he's like, I just want to be published. I'm like, okay, I'll work on it. When you, when I get back, I'll work on it. And he would get drained about a liter of fluid a day. Um, and the doctors who placed the, you know, I have pictures, they didn't shave the area. His hair was caught in the, in the tube um, with the sutures. Um, every time they would pull his bandaid, he would cringe because it would pull, rip his chest hair. So, you know, first thing I was like, let's shave him, let's get him comfortable. Let's, you know, and, th and this is where I felt that guilt that I couldn't do more for him. Uh, had I been there, I would have been a little bit more on top of things. Um, anyhow, I left um, New Year's Eve. He was in hospital for high calcium levels, more degradation from, you know, the metastasis. And January, he was admitted for two weeks in the hospital. Um, he wouldn't tell us anything. I did find from someone. And um, the reports I was given was, this is kind of the end of life. You know, you kind of have to make those decisions. I couldn't share that with my parents. They were living, breathing this, him watching him degrade. Um, so I just, you know, the report that I was given, it took me four tries to finish reading it. It was, you know, an email. And I, um, or actually it was a WhatsApp message and I had to have my husband read it. I'm like, I can't get through this. It was a 14, 15 point showing, telling me how the cancer had progressed and what the long-term prognosis are. And this was in January. Um, and I told my husband, I'm like, I, I just can't, you know, my husband literally would pick up my pieces. He's like, okay. He's like, we can't do anything. Let's just get out of the house. Let's just spend some time with our kids, you know, just take a break, stop reading this. This is not going to help you. You need to refocus because, you know, I kind of had to hold my parents. I have to support them emotionally um, because I can't do anything else for them. I cannot help them, taking them, visiting them um, to doctors. I can't get the prescriptions. I cannot make food. I'm here in New York. All I can do is all I can help is with words. So I had to be mentally really, really strong while managing a practice and kids and an office I was closing and a new practice I was handling, you know, and all the other stuff that goes with the day-to-day -day mom and Dennis life. I had this. Um, so that was 
January, I told him he was in and out of the hospital. And I think while he was in the hospital, he wrote his last piece, um, his last blog, which was um, on, and it struck a chord on me, in me when I read it, because he would share all the blogs with me while he was writing it. And I'd like to just share that one. And it was on new beginnings. And the last line in that new beginnings, he wrote, what is imperative is inner peace, strength, and truly believing that there will be a better life in this world or next. And he wrote this while he was in isolation um, for two weeks. And I knew, he knew he was going. And, and he was just really like this level of peace. I feel some people knowing their deaths um, feel that sense of calm, acceptance, you know, whatever you call it, closing to God, if there is one. And um, it, so I read it, uh, you know, I cried <laughs> and I, I knew he knew and he wouldn't, he would just, he was just so brave about it and he wouldn't share his feelings with us uh, that if he's scared or not, he was just putting on this brave face and taking care of things by himself. And February, I was like, the kids were off for a week and I'm like, you know, I'll come. And he's like, no, Didi, don't come. It's really, really cold in Calvary. You know, I, he's like, I'll tell you. And of course my passport had expired in, in February. I had renewed it in Jan because I knew I had to come anytime. Um, I was vaccinated, so it's a little bit easier. But every time I came to Canada, I had to get a compassion relief release from the government and which is a huge application so I wouldn't have to quarantine and it's on emergency basis you know taking care of a loved one who's dying or uh, for a funeral so every time I come there's a huge amount of paperwork limited release only in certain like his house or my parents house where I could visit um, and the whole application has to get approved by the government February 25th he was admitted around this time for high potassium levels, cell necrosis. And he wouldn't tell me. He's like, um, yeah, I have cell necrosis. We don't know why. I have high blood cells count. I don't know why. You know, he wouldn't share what, you know, and I knew, I knew what was happening. He knew we just kind of was like this big elephant in the room. We didn't, even while I was with him, I didn't discuss anything about, you know, death or dying wishes or anything. We, you know, we were just bypassed we didn't want the reality to be a reality we just kind of dodged around the issue and uh, you know I would talk to my dad and my dad would say he's going to die and I'm like I'm like yes I can't lie to you but uh, you know and I would hear my dad crying on the other end um, and I would kind of try to stay strong for him and then I would you know a lot of my conversations would be at work and then I would sh shut the door, take five minutes, and then I had to go, you know, be a doctor at the end and see my patients, give them my full attention. So, and I still remember that day, February 25th, he called me, he WhatsApped me, he was, you know, hospital gown, the whole nine yards. And he's like, Didi, the chest site where they put the port, they had moved it. And the initial port site, he'd been getting a lot of swellings. Um, different parts of the abdomen, but 
but now he had a new one on his chest and he's like, well, I was in the hospital because of high potassium level and I have this swelling also. So plastics is supposed to drain it. Plastics won't drain it because they want a biopsy and the biopsy has come and is positive for cancer. I'm like, oh, what do we do now? And he's like, well, they're gonna give me radiation because I'm in excruciating pain. You know, he was in a tremendous amount of pain. Um, talking, of course, was difficult, eating, loss of taste, um, and walking, sleeping, lying down, everything with the port was just uncomfortable. He would barely sleep. And he's like, I'm having a tremendous amount of pain. They're gonna give me radiation. I'm like, okay, I'll see you when you're done with radiation. So my husband hadn't seen him. And cause December I flew alone, uh, which everybody was scared about me flying cause they're like, we're already losing one child. We don't want to lose another child to COVID. And I'm like, I'll be fine. And so we, my husband and I decided we did the whole compassion relief release letter again for my husband and myself um, for March. We booked our tickets March 20th. March 12th, uh, Friday, I get a call. Papa's like, you know, Manu's coughing a lot. Um, and he's got also this lung swelling. He's not able to breathe. And he's got a swelling on one side of his leg. Not, not lung, sorry, leg. And we're taking him to the hospital. He's most likely going to be admitted. He's going to be sedated. Don't call him, let him rest. I'm like, fine. Go, him going to the hospital for something or the other was such a norm at this point. It was high blood cells or high calcium, high potassium, some infection, some draining, you know, it was just a daily recurrence. So it wasn't a big deal. March 14th, I, again, I was at work in between. I called, it was a Saturday and I only worked rarely on Saturdays. And um, in between patients, lunchtime, so they're two hours behind. I called my dad and Papa is like, we're with the palliative team right now. You know, talk to us later. So I knew this was the end because this whole time, nobody was allowed in the hospital. And I knew this was the beginning of the end. And, and I still had my tickets for the 20th. So I have six days to get there. Uh, as, so Saturday the 13th, he um, went into hospice. I finally got a hold of my parents in the evening. And my mom said, and I remember her having this conversation with my dad 28 years ago. And my mom called me and she said, um, if you can come now, he's not gonna make it till the 20th. You know, I still had a few days, uh, less than a week. And she's like, otherwise you're just here for the funeral. So if you can't do anything, come now. And all I needed was a COVID test. So I tried to expedite it late last night, you know, late on Saturday night, I couldn't get it. Sunday morning, um, I was driving with my father-in-law and my mom called, it was noonish my time. So 10 o'clock in the morning for Calgary. And my mom's like, what are you doing? And I she was very calm. And, and I'm like, nothing, I'm just driving. And you know, I got my COVID test done. She's like, pull over, say goodbye to him. And I 
got on WhatsApp. I got my husband. Uh, we three-wayed him on video and he was heavily sedated. His eyes were rolled. He kept saying, I love you. And over and over again. And I said, you know, my husband and I were together and, and I said, it's okay, go. You know, we love you. We don't want you suffering. It's okay. You don't need to hurt, you've done enough. And I'll be there, but you don't have to wait for me. So, and I felt that was important for him to hear um, that permission. I feel like, you know, I've never had to face this before. I've never seen, and all my four grandparents have passed. I never saw them pass. I've never seen any other family member pass. So he's my younger who is supposed to outlive me. And that was the hardest thing to say to him was like, it's okay to die. And, um, you know, and then I'm frantically trying to get this COVID test, calling hospitals, friends, finally got a hold of my PCP. She's like, I'm coming back from Connecticut. I meet me at the office. She expedited. We got the lab guys there, you know, got my test at like two or three in the afternoon, six o'clock. I had my test result. I booked my flight. I called home in the evening and I'm like, I'm coming. And my parents were in hospice. They're like, okay, we'll see you when you get here. So, and so we'll pick you up because we're with Manu. I'm like, fine, I'll get a tax, whatever it is, I'll take care of, you know, I'm coming. And 10, 10.30 on Sunday, the 14th, the evening, late evening, I, you know, the kids were in bed. I kissed them. I'm like, mama's going. I had booked a one-way ticket because I wasn't sure when I'm going to fly back. And I, you know, kissed the kids goodnight. Mommy's going to be home. I have to go take care of uncle. And as packing my toiletry bag in the bathroom and I got that call. They're like, Manu is no more. And I just couldn't do anything. I just stood there with my brother, with my, sorry, with my husband. And I watched my parents kiss him. Couldn't goodbye and, you know, trying to wake him up to do anything to get him back, he was gone. And I couldn't do anything. I literally couldn't do anything. And the rest of it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It's like your mind knows you need to do X, Y, and Z. And I kind of had to step up a little bit. Um, so that was a hard night to sleep, knowing that he's not going to come pick me at the airport ever. You know, he's not going to show me that Porsche. He's just not going to be around. So, and I had to fly alone. Uh, I had a long flight, whatever flight I could find. I really didn't, you know, I flew from New York to Texas to Calgary, like in this <laughs> v direction but whatever flight I could get out I, I really didn't pay attention to what I was booking I just had to get on a flight and that's all my focus was on and I did it alone I wrote the eulogy as a form of therapy while I waited at the airports I got home and it was close to midnight 
uh, midnight New York times, close to 10 o'clock, but it was dark. The house was dark. Manu's best friend uh, picked me up and dropped me home. And um, it's just the house is just eerily quiet. And my parents were just there alone in the dark. And that's, you know, and that's when it hit me, like, how did they do this yesterday? How did they leave him at the hospital to be taken to the morgue, to be taken to the funeral home? How do you come back? Like, you know, leave your child, your youngest child, like, how do you do that? I just couldn't, and not have any support. They had no family. My parents are, uh, you know, they have, my dad is the only child and my mom's all families in India and she had just lost her mom in March, in April of 2020. And she was grieving her mom, now her son, and there was just no one. Um, so the next day it was, you know, planning the funeral, the casket is, and then a lot of, my dad couldn't do anything. He's like, I can't, I'll pick it, I'll pay for it. You take care of it. Um, he's like, you write the obituary. I'm like, do you want to talk at the funeral? No. Um, so I wrote, you know, the eulogy that I had. Um, then we went to his house, you know, and this house was just, it was literally life interrupted. He loved Legos. He had a Batman Lego that was in the midst, you know, his friends would come help him make it. Um, books that he was reading, you know, where he was sitting, his blanket was still there. Everything, it was just like he'd gone on the strip and left this messy house behind. All his medications, his hospital bed, his um, tons of, he had medications in every, like even on his bed upstairs, there was a table with his pain meds, um, all the Plurex boxes and boxes of the supplies, uh, suture removal, all of that, everything, his hospital file, taking his blood pressure, his vitals, everything is just sitting there. And I got there on a Sunday night, so Tuesday, I picked up his mail and it was the Dental Town magazine where his article was published, Leaving Dentistry This Way Out. And my mom's like, well, he found his way out of life. And he had showed me this article when he had written, because that's all he would do. He, he would write and, and he was so eloquent. And, um, and I, you know, it was just this bizarre experience. Like, I'm like, you wrote this, like, you know, you showed me this two weeks ago. What do you mean you're gone? How and um, then picking out his clothes for the funeral, my mom couldn't do that. She's like, you pick it out. So all these little things, I'm glad I was there to help them get through it. But, you know, wrapping up somebody's life, especially a younger person's, you know, it's the role reversal that was hard to do. Um, you know, usually the parents would sit uh sorry the, the children usually are the ones who sit and you know decide the funeral arrangements for your parents and and wrapping up the house and putting stuff away in boxes and selling properties and all that you know it was this unnatural role reversal so 
it was, it's been very hard on my parents to do so. And, you know, and, and I found grief is so, so isolating. And, you know, we hear of people passing um, and it really, you know, you do feel, and you feel sorry for that person, but when you're in it, it's a whole different experience. Um, and you really don't understand like the magnitude, that feeling of loneliness, that void in your life um, until I lost Manu. I, I really didn't know. So this is what I had written about grief, <clears throat> that how isolating it is. And like my husband, he's, you know, he's been there through all of it. He's found me you know, midst of these semi-panic attacks where I'm crawled up in a floor or crying myself to the sleep or locked myself in the bathroom and because I don't want my children to see me. And he's literally picked up my pieces and, and you know, put them all together again and consoled me. Um, but losing a brother in is like losing a past I had. I have nobody to share where I came from. I have my future and my kids and my husband, but with him, I lost my past. And, you know, with my parents, it was the time I'll be all alone. And that's the feeling that I can't express to anybody, that feeling of loneliness. Yes, I have my my extended family. Yes, I have my husband and his family and my children, but that core of who I was, what joys or sorrows or experiences I had, that person who traveled my life with me, my brother, with my parents, I don't have that anymore. And I've had to give my Self, that freedom to cry, to be alone, um, and not to be alone, because sometimes the mind can be a dangerous place. Um, and grief has hit me like a tsunami. It takes my breath away sometimes. And sometimes it's in silent tears. And sometimes it's family, happy memories. And I've had to learn to say no, to not be there for others' joys, because I don't feel like it and just to help me work through my emotions. And one day I'll be there, but I just need that time. And I've learned to forgive others for not understanding because they haven't been touched by grief. Their lives didn't change. The world didn't stop for others, stopped for me. So that life moving on, you know, after Manu's funeral, getting up that next morning, knowing literally he's not there anymore and now we've cremated him. You know, that was very hard to accept that everything's just the same. The sun came out and everybody's going on with their lives and things need to be done. And, um, you know, you switch on the TV and the news is back on and shows are running. He's just not a part of it. And that was very hard to accept. But I've learned to know that that, not staying in that position of grief and learning to make those little steps and move on. Um, it's a part of healing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's something I can't say that 
I truly understand you're right. No one has walked in your shoes and no one has lived the experience that you've gone through. Um, You've carried an incredible burden for your family. And I see how much you do outside of what is within this story. So as you mentioned, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're a practice owner, you're a daughter, and you're carrying this burden of a sister. And, and that's, that's a huge burden. So you're right. It's you learning to take that freedom to, to lean into the grief. Um, and I can see how it's fueled you and inspired you to continue to share the story and to share this impact. Um, because if anyone can make it feel less isolating, right, then it can be someone who can hear your words if they're going through the same thing. Um, so I think this is such a raw, honest thing to do. It's so courageous for you to speak. Um, it's not an easy thing at all. And I've heard, and I've read this story and, um, I've read the book I've spoken. We've had a long discussion before this and it's still, you know, something that you can't, I'm emotional about it. I can't even begin <laughs> to imagine this is, it's a fraction of what you must be experiencing. It yeah, it, it is. And, and my only, and I think, you know, and Manu, you know, he gave me the tools and I don't know what, you know, they say the life's purpose was done and that's why he left, you know, the pundit, the priest was like, everybody goes on a train, gets on a train life and some people have to their stops earlier because their mission and whatever they had to do it's done I don't know what his you know we haven't discovered it but he left me with words and and like the part of the griefing uh, process for me was you know uh, we had like I said he had talked to we, we talked about in December to publish and I had found a publisher and I told him in February before his before his um, radiation treatment. And I said, I found somebody and he's like, why are you rushing me? I really need to write more. And I'm like, okay, fine, whenever you're ready, but I want you to focus on something good. And he's like, okay, but you know, uh, he wouldn't give me all the writings. He's like, it's all on um, Dropbox. And he's like, I'll give it to you. I just want to write more. So when I came for the funeral, I got into his laptop, I found the Dropbox and I found his half written pieces and I included them in the book. And this was like my mission. I'm like, I haven't been able to help him with anything in the last two years. I, you know, couldn't, with COVID, I couldn't come and help and it wasn't easy. Like, you know, had COVID not been there, maybe I would have flown more. My my husband could have taken turns. My in-laws could have helped my parents, you know, anything. Um, So that was like my mission. And I was like, I got to get this book in, in print. And mm-hmm. I used his laptop and I wrote uh, the forward and the epilogue on his computer. And it was just, you know, the words just came out and it was nice. Cause I am like, okay, this is what he touched and this is his, and I'm using this to tell his story. And it really helped in um, healing, you know, mm-hmm getting him his message and whatever I wrote was again it was very raw I was in the moment of I I still hadn't cremated him you know we waited a week before cremation we still waited for my husband to come on March 20th and I was in Canada alone with my parents so 
everybody dealt with grief differently. And whatever time I found a lot of time since I wasn't working, I didn't have my children. And I wrote, took that time to write. And, um, and, in, and as soon as I got back, um, I signed the contract with the publisher and uh, they were nice enough to kind of get the story a little expedited and, and get it together. So mm -hmm. we did it quick by, uh, I think by July we were done and August the book was in print. So yeah, they worked, but that was it. He wrote and he wanted to share this with the world. And a lot of his writings, he says, you know, how death is something we can't bypass. Everybody's going to die. It, you know, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't know. You know, he knew death, it shouldn't be scared of death. Um, but it's to leave some sort of a legacy. The way to stay immortal is to do something for the humankind mm -hmm. um, that would make you immortal, that you make somebody life better, somebody else's life better. And if you can do that, you will always stay immortal. Those were his, you know, in words, and he, he expressed that in a few of his blogs. And, you know, and this, that's why the book, that he had such a strong message on so many different things, you know, that the wisdom that he had, I don't, you know, for his age and for what his life experiences were, it's, um, it's a lot. Yeah. I think some people feel this in their late stages of life, not this early, but it was him facing his mortality that he knew he didn't have time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so many lessons within the book. So many lessons. Yes. I, I love how, he wrote this and how you put the book together, um, the different chapters. So for those who haven't read the book, absolutely, it's a must read. I think it should be a sign for any dentist, any dental student. Um, it, it is just so important. There's so many life lessons uh, and there's so many lessons about, you know, the, the very last blog post that was in Dental Town um, right. on, on dentistry as well is so important. But I love how the chapters um, are divided into, like, for example, the titles are hope, ability to endure, suffering, fear, failure, losing money. I love the chapter on puppies. Um, mortality, yeah. that was really impactful. Uh, I think that was the first chapter where I couldn't keep it together anymore because you're right. The wisdom is beyond his years um, that the way he understands mortality and the peace that he was able to find with that um, beautiful words to describe that. And then the, the thing that you were just mentioning um, on finding internal peace and trophies, there's two quotes I wanted to share about yep. um, how he felt about writing. And the first one um, well, I think this, this kind of goes to show about like life purpose and there's a difference between a job, a career and a calling. And sometimes those three things don't line up and that's okay. Um, but I love how he wrote this. Um, he says, if there's something that you must seek and that you would be equally content with no one knowing about it, then you have truly found something of meaning that you should cherish. So, you know, like following your passions, right? Like if you want to do something just for the pure joy of yourself, okay. no one else would ever know, then that is your true meaning, um, something that you should pursue. And that was what writing was to Manu. Um, and then he also goes on to write, these words I write are a means to heal my own soul. And I would be just as content if they were typed yes. up and left for no one to see 
for no one to see other than they were printed and published. I have found my soul. I liked it in mine too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that line, do you want to finish it? Go ahead and finish that sentence. Oh, I can go back to it. Yeah. These words I write are a means to heal my soul. And I would just be as content if they were typed up and left for no one to see than if they were printed and published. I have found my soul and there is no trophy in the world for that accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is tr- true impact, that selflessness, that is following and pursuing his passion, his dharma, right? He found what it was and followed that. And, and through that, there is this greater impact, that immortality that he will have, that he will continue to live on through these words. Um, yeah which it becomes full circle. So, so many lessons in the book. Um. At this time, we are ending part one of this conversation. Please join us on the next episode for part two, where we will talk more about the life lessons from Manu's book, Life Interrupted, and more about the grieving process from Parle. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.